Welcome to Moving Out of Trauma, a podcast made to support trauma survivors with actionable steps and resources so they can start moving out of trauma and into the life that they're craving. I'm the host, Candice Lederger, EMDR therapist, yoga teacher, first-time mom, and dog enthusiast. I am here in Phoenix, Arizona, and I am so excited about today's episode. But before we dive into today's episode of Moving Out of Trauma, I want to give you a few reminders. The first is that if you want to start practicing more mindfulness and incorporate more grounding skills in your daily life, but you've had some trouble getting started because of past trauma, I want to offer you a free trauma-informed beginner's guide to mindfulness workbook. I created this workbook with trauma in mind. You can get this free workbook as well as monthly updates about new content by heading over to soulmission-emdrtherapy.com slash podcast. You can sign up for our newsletter there and you will get this free workbook directly to your inbox that you can download as many times as you like and get updates when I update it as well. Again, that link is soulmission-emdrtherapy.com slash podcast. And a second reminder I want to give is at the end of this recording and the end of every episode for that matter, we will be giving you two resources that we often use in EMDR therapy, which are the container exercise as well as the state change place. So these exercises are visualization exercises that can help you transition from maybe a state of thinking about past trauma, awareness, learning something new into a more calm, more centered way of being so you can go on throughout your day. I hope these resources help and I would love to know your thoughts. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Today on Moving Out of Trauma, I have two wonderful special guests with me today. I have Rebecca Patton of Patent Pelvic Health. She, they, and uh, Rebecca is a pelvic physical therapist who supports all patients of all genders and identities with trauma-informed and an inclusive approach. Rebecca has a passion for destigmatizing sexual health and pelvic health concerns across the gender and sexual identity spectrum and is a second-time guest on Moving Out of Trauma uh, as we had a really cool conversation before about just reconnecting to the body after trauma. Um, which was actually one of the first episodes of the season. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to that, definitely go back and check her out. And then I also have Jacqueline here with us, who is the face behind the Lost Labia Chronicles, the CEO and the founder of what started out as a blog, but also then developed into a hub of information, resources, tips, tricks, and all types of support to just help people in a very inclusive, safe space uh, for anywhere that they may be at in their journey of lichen sclerosis. Did I say it correctly? Awesome. (laughs) So today we are going to be talking about this topic of lichen sclerosis and just all the different pieces that go along with it. And I'm so excited to have you both on here so we can talk a little bit more about this topic as I know it's an important one um, and I just want to hear all of your wisdom about it because I I am new to it and new to understanding about it and I think that from what I understand it's an important thing to 
raise more awareness around because not a lot of people like myself knew anything about it. So I'm so excited for today's conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited too. Absolutely. So for the first little piece of our show, I like to get to know the people on the show with this quote that's knowing a person is like knowing their music, right? What attracts us to them is their melody. And as we get to know them, we learn their lyrics. And so I really enjoy that quote because I think it shows all the complexities of humanness and who we are as not just providers, but people. Um, And so my first question to both of you is, why are you passionate about the work that you do? No goes. (laughs) Whoever wants to go first. (laughs) I will start. So why am I passionate about the work that I do? Um, A lot of the work that I do centers around sclerosis and educating folks and supporting folks wherever they are in their lichen sclerosis journey. And I am incredibly passionate about this, um, particularly because I went through a really rough time processing my diagnosis. And I remember how isolated I felt, how very alone. I just felt like I was in the dark trying to find my way and there was no real resources, no real community that I found. And once I got things in remission and started feeling good again, I felt I want to pay that forward. And I want to share all of the wisdom that I've picked up on the way to help support others in that because what may seem, quote, just a skin condition can really impact our mental health and our sexual health. And I really just want to show up for others in in those difficult times. I love that. I love the the pay it forward mentality and really just wanting to just continue that forward and helping other people. That's so beautiful. Thank you. I'll go next. Okay. <laughs> Is there more people? I, I did allude to on the previous episode, just how I love watching people connect to their body. So I'll go in a little bit of a different direction, but I think When I started off on a journey of trying to understand the body, I thought that it was an isolated journey by myself. And I think throughout providing care to others, I've realized more and more that we heal in community and we heal with other people. And I had all the knowledge in my brain about sclerosis, but actually like talking to people mm-hmm. who had been through the same experience was more healing than diagnosing myself and getting medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think needs. it's important to have community when you're dealing with anything. And I see in pelvic health and pelvic pain that the isolation is heavy. Talking mm-hmm. about it is not the same as talking about your ankle sprain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like that you um, brought up the community piece because that is something that has come up in a lot of episodes so far that I've been recording, not that they've been released, but I've been recording them in the background. And there's been just this theme of community popping up in in so many aspects of of a lot of providers work. Um, And I, I think it's absolutely critical. And every step of any journey community is important. But I think as you shared, it's especially important um, for this community. Yeah. 
Definitely. How does your personality show up in the room with the people that you work with? So that's a funny question because I work alone. Um, I work remotely. (laughs) I'm like, how do I show up to myself in my apartment? (laughs) In my pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) This could be the people that you you support, the clients that you work with. (laughs) <laughs> Fair. My initial, my my mind initially went to taking the question the very literally, and I'm like, I roll out of bed. I me myself my, and I. Yeah. <laughs> I know, wear I my most like comfortable a, clothes. That's oh right. my gosh! Yes, they're mismatched, mismatched socks, like okay. the works. And then I find so I took a little literally. I I like to think that I am a mix of kind of information resources, but also compassion and comfort and safety. I know that some folks refer to me as an encyclopedia when it comes to time. You know, know, I get a lot of emails saying your warmth really came through, even across the screen, your compassion really helped, your empathy. You really show up for the community in that way too, not just a here's the facts and then I kind of just poof, disappear. Yeah, you got the best of both worlds. I like that. Mm -hmm. In comfy clothes and and mismatching. Oh, always. (laughs) I love that. Yes. What about you, Rebecca? So probably sometimes squirrely, but that's okay. My brain works like that. I am working to not mask myself Mm -hmm. more in patient care. And I was taught or my perception of the way I was taught was such a like, be like this allude of professionalism that is not only unsustainable, but it's dry and not full of heart. And so breaking that down for me has been really important to Mm -hmm. not be like two different versions of myself and Mm -hmm. to say, I'm going to show up as myself in patient care. And sometimes they scare you as healthcare providers to, to do that authentically myself, which is a little squirrely, like my brain is very excited about things and passionate. And I just want to give you the most resources and hopefully people can find like in amongst all the things and advice I have and suggestions, like you find something that fits for you individually, but you don't have to do everything that I suggest. Yeah. I love that. And I, can agree from a mental health professional uh, standpoint. I think that for some reason, I don't know how it it became this way, but I feel like it it has been taught in a way that here's, and again, boxes are another theme that's come up, but here's your box. This is where you stay. This is what you do. Um, This is how your personality needs to fit into this. And what that's not authentic. That's not human. We're our own people and squirreliness can come up and, and, Yeah, all sorts of things can come up based off who we are. I love that. I'd like to just add that I think from a patient perspective too, that shift away from that clinical presentation is very important and coming to what Rebecca was saying in the beginning about the kind of isolation that comes with having a genital pelvic condition. We don't talk about it in the same way we talk about an ankle sprain or, you know, a shoulder tear. And so... There's so much kind of shame and stigma and nervousness building inside of us 
by the time we step in that room, we're already terrified. And then to be met with this strictly clinical, very, to use Rebecca's term, very dry, Mm -hmm. it only adds to our discomfort and doesn't really leave us feeling safe. And when we don't feel safe, we don't talk or fully disclose everything that's going on. And so that impacts our quality of care because now you don't have the full picture because I don't feel comfortable sharing it with you. So I'm all for let's get rid of these boxes because I don't think they're doing anyone, patient or provider, a service. It's it's not good in either direction. Yeah. It's trash. Throw it in the garbage. Yeah. Burn it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, I absolutely agree. That's yeah. Thank you for bringing that up too and pulling that all together because I think you're absolutely right. And yeah, let's burn all the boxes. Let's just throw them away. Let's rip them to shreds. That's the theme. Them. That'll be the name. Burn no all the boxes. Community. No boxes, all community. Oh my gosh. Yes. I love that. That needs to be a bumper sticker. Okay. <laughs> what is the top thing you wish everyone in the world knew about the work that you're doing? And this could relate to skin sclerosis, that could, this can relate to pelvic floor, this can, however you see uh, fit to answer that. I'll go first if I have an idea. I think that the way I see like a future of people being more empowered in their healthcare is us not stigmatizing the pelvis from literally the time of childhood and Mm -hmm. not telling people like very foundational anatomy and function. Mm -hmm. Because if I had information about what a healthy vulva looks like and what are some signs when your vulva, maybe you want to get an evaluation and assessment. And I, we don't talk about those things because all of it's wrapped up in this guise of sexual health. And as soon as anything in our culture becomes sexual health, it becomes dangerous and not empowering when I think it's the exact opposite. If I had this information, if I had basic anatomy and not waiting until college and not even college, but I had to be like a pelvic health specialist before I was educated. I think that's really important. It would be like, a shift and a change about the work we're doing is I'm not um, doing podcasts and medicine and patient education and teaching classes just to have everything continue to be the same, mm-hmm. but I yeah. want a change for the future. And that means like accessible foundational anatomy and like health education that includes the pelvis and the genitals. Yeah, absolutely. I as you're talking about that, I just feel like it, it made me think back to my own education and and I don't think they covered much of anything. I, it, yeah, so I there's a lot of change to to take place to a lot of room for growth, right? And it, it sounds like you're definitely taking part in one of the leading places to help that growth happen. And that makes me really happy. And I already know that on the back end, but at the same time, I, I want everyone else to know that you are doing that, those pieces like, to help that change. For example, someone had just posted about the clitoris today and teaching people that it exists and that's a thing and what the structure yeah. looks like. And research is not as relatively, I think still needing to be done, but 
That being said, if we had known that there's, if everybody knows that there's a hood over the clitoris and that erectile tissue, and you should be able to retract that hood away and that should be comfortable and that should stretch really well and it shouldn't be painful and you have a clitoris underneath of the hood, right? For anyone with lichens, that would already maybe be an indicator of some signs to get help. Mm. Yeah. So just even understanding the basis and then, hey, when something's wrong or when something needs to be addressed, this is what this can look like. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Thank you, Rebecca. Jacqueline? Yeah, no, I love this conversation and I have to echo so much of what Rebecca said. I think we're just, and I was like laughing internally, Candace, when you were like, yeah, let me think back to my sex education. And I was like, in my head, I was like, what sex education? Because I personally don't categorize what I received in high school as sex education because it was STIs, mm-hmm. but it wasn't even informing us about yeah. STIs in a educational way. way. It was like, picture, this will happen if you have sex. Mm -hmm. Don't do it because that's bad and that's gross and that's wrong. And then it was, don't have sex or you'll get pregnant. And that was the end. Um, There's no talk, like Rebecca was saying, just bringing it back to basics, teaching us about our body. I always tell this story when I was in grad school. I'm like, I'm bad with how old I was. Let's say I'm like 30, no, 27 or something like this. Old enough is the point. And I'm in grad school and I'm sitting at our grad pub and we're all like drinking and snacking on nachos or whatever. And I, I don't know what the conversation was, but I remember saying, yeah, I pee out of my vagina. And this one individual stopped me and they were like, excuse me, sorry, what? And I was like, yeah, I pee out of my vagina. And they were like, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. You pee out of your urethra. And I was like, I'm sorry. And then they took a napkin, one of those mm-hmm. like napkins that they give you to put your drink on. Yeah. They took that, took a pen and drew me a vulva mm-hmm. and showed me all the different parts and then said, that's your urethral opening. That's where the pee comes out of. Your vagina is down here. No pee comes out of your vagina. And I I think the reason I keep saying this story is because this wasn't me saying this at 11 years old or 10 years old, eight years old saying, mommy, I pee out of my vagina. No, I was 27. I was in grad school. I was, I considered myself to be educated and knowledgeable, but I didn't know that basic fundamental fact about my body. And that still strikes me because when we talk about the clitoral hood and the retracting, never had I ever heard of that. Until I got lichen sclerosis and was told, hey, your clitoris is com- or your hood is completely scarred over your clitoral glands. And that was the first time I ever heard of it. And for a lot of folks, it's that's too late. <laughs> it's, it would have been nice if you caught this early. And one of the things that I talk about a lot and LSSN talks about a lot is the importance of vulva checks and knowing your anatomy. And you do not need to have a vulvar condition to do a vulva check. In fact, mm-hmm. I encourage everybody if they, if it feels safe and, you know, comfortable for them to look at themselves and know what your baseline is so that if you do experience a change and there are so many vulvovaginal conditions, it's not just about lichen sclerosis. There's a ton of things and almost every condition. It's so important with early detection that Mm -hmm. we get it caught as 
early as possible so we can get folks on treatment as early as possible and slow progression of a lot of these conditions. Mm-hmm. But most folks, again, coming back to sex education, no one ever said to me, look at your vulva. And no one ever said, get acquainted with yourself. Yeah. Get to know what bits do and, and what you look like and what you feel like and all of these things. I had no idea the first time I checked my own vulva was at 31 after I was diagnosed. And I remember when I got the diagnosis, my GP said, did you always look like this? And again, that was another one of those sentences that really stayed with me because I realized in that moment at 31 years old, I didn't know how to answer her question because I had never looked at myself not once. And so it's about also just bringing it back to what Rebecca said, destigmatizing the genitals, destigmatizing sexual health. Again, talking about we have it all backwards. We have it all backwards with sex Mm. education. We really do. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Um, I want to be friends with that stranger. I love that they just came up and gave you a drawing. I hope I can do that for somebody someday. Yes. And like that stuck with me, right? Yeah. I will never, ever say I pee out of my vagina again. I will always know that I pee out of my urethra. And that was like my first introduction to, oh, the vulva isn't this just mm-hmm. singular blob down there. There are different parts that do different things and serve different mm-hmm. functions. So yeah, they're pretty awesome. <laughs> so cool. And I guess I I don't want to take us too far off course. so. I do want to ask though, I want, cause I want both of your inputs on this as to, cause I know both of you work with this destigmatization. Gosh, I'm trying to think how to like really formulate this question because things are so shamed because from a very early age, we're taught, no, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it, whatever. And then that leaks into our sex education, air quotes, and what that looks like. What changes do you see being made? So that way, obviously, I know, Rebecca, you're doing work on the forefront of that, but what changes are being made? So that is destigmatizing and that earlier on people can get that sex education, if that's even happening. I don't know. So I don't I, tell me, tell me what that looks like right now um, in our, our landscape, because I'm I'm removed from that, at least until my little one gets a little bit older and <laughs> encounters that um, it's all conversations at home. Yeah. This is where we take into account that there are such large social structures at play. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody to feel like they individually have to solve all of these problems is too heavy for any one individual. So when we think like on a systemic level, we know that the location in which you're born plays a role in our country, right? What state you're in, what laws they have around what teachers are fundamentally allowed to teach you, what your parents' education was, socioeconomic status, access to education, the heaviness of that question. I don't want anyone to feel like any individual person it falls on, but I can say I, I'm, te- I'm teaching a college cl- course right now on pelvic health. And even I took a little moment to reach out to a senior professor to just say, Hey, I'm talking a lot about sexual health. Is there anything I'm not allowed to say on a college level? I actually had to 
ask if there was something because I was just like thinking, oh my goodness, I'm not from the state of Arizona. I don't know what the laws are. The last thing I need is you want to be forthcoming. And then you also are like, I need to make sure I can continue to do this work. Yeah. (laughs) On a college level, things are much different, but I think it's harder. I don't think that there, I think every state is just so different in Mm -hmm. the level of sex education. And then you have to take into account private versus public schools. And then you have to take into account just even if someone is allowed to have that education, do they even have a teacher Mm -hmm. that they can bring in to teach that information? Mm. There's a lot of barriers. There are mm -hmm. so many barriers. And I I guess until, and that's one of the reasons why I asked the question is I only have the experience that I have of looking back and and what sex education looked like for me, how many ever years ago, we're not going to say, in the state of Arizona. And to think of it from this perspective and how many barriers are in place for really any one person to get just education, just the bare minimum education I won't say bare minimum because what what we got was probably bare minimum, but just to get the right information, the right education. Hopefully we can allude to the positive aspect of this. And for me, it's been social media. Yeah, Um, I really like following different accounts that are doing these. They're giving parents the advice of different conversations for different ages. One of them is consent parenting. Another one is it's giving the talk. I love that there are people that are doing this work. I like Ann Hodder's. I think that's her last name, but I'm not positive. Who's a sexual sexuality educator? And I love Erica Smith, who destigmatizes or helps people that are recovering from purity culture hmm. education. I don't know. This is where I have found community and healing. And he heard a lot of the same responses to my experience. And that's been amazing. Thank you for sharing. I love that that you brought up the social media part. Mm -hmm. I think this conversation is so layered and so complex. And when we're talking at a school level, we're really talking about policymakers, politicians, and that was a tremendous barrier and Mm -hmm. sometimes makes it feel like we're stuck when there's no way we can enact change because of the political landscape that we're in. But then to Rebecca's point, there's a lot out there on social media. There is still a lot of, there's a lot of amazing individuals out there that are doing this kind of work. And there's a nice momentum going now, I think, in the sexual health space that I hope to just see keep growing and and moving forward. Just to add to what Rebecca was saying, uh, Selena Gomes, she is a sex educator and she does a lot of one-on-one coaching with parents to teach kids about their anatomy and how to have those different conversations. There's Andrea Sexplains It, I believe, is the, yeah. She's fabulous as well. And she works at Dr. Rachel Rubin's office as a sex educator. And she will talk to folks of all ages, all genders about sex education and really give folks proper sex education. I think they also do at that clinic. I think they do monthly workshops for the community as well. So hopefully in more private practice spaces, we'll see sex educators having a space in those offices to help offset whatever the main clinicians are doing. And I 
love. There are some children's books out there where folks are starting to illustrate, here's what's going on with your body beyond pooping and peeing. We've got a lot of books about those and those are important and have their space, but let's also learn about the parts that are involved in the pooping and the peeing, which is not your vagina, it's your urethra. Um, (laughs) So there, I learned, I think there is a lot of work being done on social media to destigmatize. And I think one of my roles in that is just speaking so damn openly about my vulva. I always joke that if people put my name into Google search, they'll probably be able to figure out what my vulva looks like because I describe it so graphically without shame. Um that I'm like, if anyone has like a visual imagination, they know what I look like down there. And I'm okay with that. Um, Because I think the more I talk so openly, and I've talked about my issues with sexual health, uh, pain with sex, all of these things, I just talk so openly about them nonstop all the time. um, To just help be like, hey, this is normal. Like my vulva is like my throat, like my ears, like any other part of my body. And we shouldn't feel shame talking about it. So I hope that talking very loudly about my vulva and about my genitals and about my sexual health will in some small way contribute to the kind of destigmatization of our genitals and sexual health. I love that. Yeah, I'm just going to hold all of that. And that's so amazing, but especially just the loudness and the proudness of that is how we, I remember first seeing your Instagram handle, the Lost Labia Chronicles. And I remember thinking like something hasn't surprised me in a little bit of a long time. And even that I was like, that is audacity. And I love it. (laughs) Thank you. That makes me so happy. Thank you so much. (laughs) I think that's beautiful. Yeah, because I think even with that, you're destigmatizing things. You're speaking that truth. So that way people can, hey, this is normal. Like this. And I like how you put that. This is anything like my nose, my ears, my throat, my shoulder, however you put it. It's just like any other part. It's not something that deserves to be shamed or shoved away in a corner because it's just another part of my body that deserves attention. Yeah. 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 Okay. So stepping into our topic for today. Now, the first question that I posed was what is lichen sclerosis? And so I don't know if both or one or how we want to. Okay. <laughs> that <laughs> to <me>? define that. <laughs> Am I up at the top? Okay. Oh, I was going to say, I thought you were raising your hand. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. This is me. Can I get an amen or something? <laughs> no, I just know that Jacqueline has said it so many times that I just know that you have a concise way of saying it Beautiful. <laughs> or a better than I do. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So lichen sclerosis is a chronic inflammatory skin condition. It is progressive. It can affect the extra genital skin. So you can get it on your arms, chest, abdomen, buttocks, thighs, etc. But more commonly, you see it on the genitals, the vulva, it can affect the perianal area, and it can also affect the penis. Those are the areas that tend to experience it more versus the stomach or the thighs, It is considered to be autoimmune in nature. There does seem to be a hereditary link. Statistics in the research tend to vary between 8 and 16% of folks in those studies do have a relative with lichen sclerosis. There does seem to be a hereditary link. There does seem to be a genetic component as well. 
Um, and then the main symptoms of this when it's genital are pain, and that can present in a number of ways. So it could be burning, stinging, stabbing, aching, soreness, and then it can be itch. Uh, and, and like pain, itch, it varies from person to person, and you don't need to have both pain and itch. Some folks just have the pain, some folks just have the itch, and some folks have both. And the intensity of the symptoms can vary as well. It can present as mild and sporadic. So eh, I'm sore on and off randomly or I itch on and off, but it's not too severe. And then you've got the severe, you know, end of the spectrum where folks will say, I itch so bad that in the morning, my underwear that I slept in have holes and there's blood under my fingernails from scratching because I'm so itchy. And then there's everything in between. And then when we talk about clinical signs, which is things that you can see, it's often um, hypopigmentation, which is a lightening of your skin. Talking about vulva checks, this is why it's important to know your baseline because all vulvas come in different colors. And so your vulva being lighter may not necessarily be an indication of sclerosis. It could just be that's your baseline. So again, that's why it's important to know what is your baseline because whatever your baseline color is, it's going to lose pigment. It's going to get lighter and lighter. That could be the whole vulva or just a part of the vulva. Um, and then other clinical signs are changes, physical changes to the vulva. So your inner lips, the labia minora can fuse to the outer lips, the labia majora. They can also actually fuse inward. So they can fuse together either at the bottom or the top. So when they fuse together, that can sometimes actually impact the urethra because it can actually fuse over the urethra. And now the patient will have difficulty urinating. You can also have fusing at the base of the vagina. Some folks will say it looks like there's a literal shelf, a shelf of scar tissue sitting either at the six o'clock or the 12 o'clock, depending on which way you're looking. It can be either or or both. And then the clitoral hood can fuse partially or completely over the glands. So these are big things that we can see with our eyes. There's also uh, folks with lichen sclerosis are more prone to blisters, um, blood blisters specifically and bruising. So there can be some hyperpigmentation along with it. So there can be some redness, some purpley colors. Again, it really all presents differently on different bodies, but those are some of the main signs and symptoms. And again, it is progressive. It is chronic. So it's something that when you get that diagnosis, it's a, it's a forever thing, unfortunately. That's where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. Let me grab a notepad because I told myself that I would have a notepad for when I wanted to ask questions. And um, <laughs> I forgot the notepad part because I just forgot a question and I remembered that I forgot the notepad. So all that to say, I, I was going to ask you a question and I don't know what it was. So. <laughs> um, but now I have a notepad. So hopefully that won't happen again. No worries. Oh, so. With all of those different symptoms, and I know you said that it's progressive, but how is this not being caught more often? Because I know one of the things that you and I discussed previously was that, is it rare or is it just underdiagnosed? So like, how is this not being seen mm -hmm. yeah. when someone's being seen? <laughs> like yeah, 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 yeah. No, and that's a great question because 
most LS specialists will say it's not rare. It's just misdiagnosed and under-recognized. And the European Commission in January of 2023 put out a study stating that lichen sclerosis in Europe anyways is not considered rare anymore. It's not classified as a rare disease. Instead, it's classified as high burden and under-researched topic for a different day. But all that to say that I also don't believe it's rare. I do think that it's just we're not catching it. People are going misdiagnosed for years. I think I told you, Candace, for me, it took 11 years to get diagnosed. The average is between 5 and 15 years, which is a really long time. So there's a number of things that I think contribute to the misdiagnosis piece. But I think one is a lot of misinformation. So for the longest time, doctors had this idea that to have lichen sclerosis, you have to have itch. If there's no itch, it's not lichen sclerosis. So that means that folks like me who would come in saying, I have pain with sex, I have burning, it's not lichen sclerosis because in their minds, itch has to be there. And because it's not there, I don't get that diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. And then age is another factor, and this ties into the itch. When I was diagnosed, I was told, wow, you're really special. This basically only happens to people in menopause or post-menopause. It's really just my older patients that get this, which was not the nicest thing to hear because then I felt like a strange anomaly and just only contributed to those feelings of isolation. But a lot of doctors will still operate with that assumption that folks in that kind of pre-menopausal category don't get in sclerosis because the old textbooks cite this bimodal peak distribution that basically says two groups of people get LS, children and folks in postmenopause. And they attribute that to hypoestrogenic states. So in children with children and then in postmenopause, your estrogen takes a nice dip. When estrogen is low, there tends to be more itch. So those two groups are more likely to also present with itch. So this means that when a doctor sees a patient, again, like me, who's in their 20s, who has pain, their mind doesn't go to LS because A, I don't have the itch, but B, I'm also not in that kind of peak distribution that their textbooks kind of cite. Now, recently, new research has emerged on folks who are in that kind of pre-menopausal state from, I think it was 19 to 49, they did that study. And what they found was in that category, actually, the top three symptoms were all related to sexual health and pain. So it was pain with sex, tearing with sex, and then decreased clitoral sensation Mm -hmm. for that age group. And most specialists, the reason that study was done was because the specialists there were like, I don't understand. My textbooks tell me it's basically for post-menopause, but day in and day out, all I see is folks in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So there's a mismatch between my lived experience as a clinician and what I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis and what's in the textbook. So they started doing some studies to see what's going on with this big gap in between. And so that's what we're finding. And so I think that For doctors who are not so up to date on the current research, who are falling back on those ideas of has to be itch, probably going to be postmenopausal, then that's a huge category of folks that are just going to be overlooked. Um, And so they go to the default diagnosis, which is usually yeast, 
mm-hmm. is the main one, right? Oh, pain, itch, discomfort, soreness. Okay, you've got a yeast infection. That's the main one. And then the second one is actually herpes. A lot of folks get a herpes diagnosis, which always intrigues me because then I say, oh, that's interesting that they swab the lesions and they say, no, there was no swab. And I said, okay, so how did they know it was herpes? And they said, I said it was painful and sex was painful. So they said it was herpes. And I'm like, "Uh, I'm sorry, what? That doesn't register with me. I'm like, okay, that's not how it should be. But yeah, I think it's a lot of that. I also think there's a lot of shame that people still hold to. A lot of folks don't actually go to the doctor, A, because maybe they've experienced medical gaslighting in, in their past. And so they don't trust doctors, so they won't even come in. And then two, there is a lot of shame. I've heard folks talk to me who were diagnosed at 40 and said, I I had symptoms since I was 20, but I felt so ashamed. I didn't want to talk to my doctor about my vulva. I didn't want to talk to them about my sexual health. Um, and my sexual health issues. So I just never had that conversation with my doctor. So it's like shame and stigma on our end can prevent or slow us getting in to a doctor's office, which can contribute to that delayed diagnosis. Doctors not staying up to current, you know, research is, is another big one. Um, and then I think there was an added layer of difficulty with COVID um, because It was interesting during COVID, I'm in Canada, so I know our lockdowns were a lot longer than the United States, but in Canada, you couldn't see a doctor for the first year or two. Everything was telehealth. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that vulvar itch and vulvar pain could be like 20 plus conditions. And you can't make a diagnosis of sclerosis based solely on pain and or itch. You really need to do a clinical examination look at the vulva and potentially biopsy if necessary. But a lot of folks didn't have access to that during the pandemic and everything was being done over the phone. And so a lot of folks would get diagnosed, misdiagnosed over the phone because they were like, I just can't get any provider to look at me right now because everything is is shutting down. So I think that was a an added challenge to that already long kind of laundry list of what could be going on. And all of this is just my opinion of why you know, misdiagnoses are so rampant in this space. And obviously there are so many layers to what you just shared. And one of the things that was playing in my mind over and over as you were sharing this was like, damn, thank you for social media and for the internet and for all of those things, because then you, then that person can educate themselves. They can become more aware. They can look up whatever symptoms and and try and finding more educators to understand like, oh, hey, like maybe it's this or maybe it's that. And even just bringing that to a doctor and saying, hey, what about X, Y, Z? And I know doctors aren't the biggest fan of Dr. Google, but at the same time, hey, like I did this research, I did this homework, and this is what I'm experiencing. And this is what it lines up with steps into that advocating for yourself and finding your voice and feeling, hey, no, I know something is not right. Like here is here is the information that I have found. Do stuff. You're the doctor. Do stuff. (laughs) Figure it out. And also look at me. Yes. Don't diagnose herpes with my pants on. Like. Oh my gosh, mind Don't blowing. Don't diagnose anything vulva related with pants on. Everything Truly. causes pain. Everything can cause itch. So that's very unhelpful without actually seeing what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, Rebecca, did you have any, I, anything? I wanted I mean, to give you a chance was, to speak too. 
Those are all fantastic. I, I don't feel like I need to really elaborate. The only thing I can say is I think patients, when they have pelvic pain, also there's so many doctors for the pelvis. I try to emphasize this like when I'm talking and preparing people to get into pelvic health, that it's not the same as other parts of the body. In literally two to three inches, there's potentially I can think off the top of my head, five to eight different physicians. So patients are confused about where to go to. And just for example, if you're having pain with sex and your urethral discomfort and your sexual health has changed and you're having itching, you could be going to a urogynecologist, a urologist, a gynecologist. Then there's like vulvar specialists. Do people even know that those exist? And did you just go to an OBGYN office. And maybe that OB is more OB focused and not so much on other aspects of updated on the like vulvar health. And then you have pelvic floor physical therapists that get referred to patients with pain. And we should be educated in doing screens on every patient on their vulvar health, I think. So that's something that I do every time now, but it's not something I was taught or started from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you listen, excuse me, all those providers that I didn't know those things. And one, I appreciate you sharing that. And two, I'm wondering, I don't know if you have this information somewhere on on your website or social media or a breakdown of Nope, it's in here. (laughs) It's all up there. Okay. Oh, if Uh, I could, I'll hire somebody though, if anyone wants to put what's in my brain on like a pretty piece of paper. Wow. Load it all in there. Load it up to Canva. It's good. Exactly. (laughs) Load it up to Canva. People should know this is, I think I would just send people to Jacqueline's resource group. Honestly, I participated in her support group on Saturdays and it was fantastic. I can't emphasize enough. What a great space they have created with accurate information and just community support and people, a bunch of people going through the same things. It was just soothing to my soul. Thank you so much for saying that. That's beautiful. And I I really appreciate your words uh, because we really do work very hard to continuously improve that space to make it as safe, inclusive, and educational. And just, we want that to be that space for our community to come and be like, hey, I'm not okay today. Mm. Not okay. And I just need somebody to hear it because it's harder to to talk about these things. And, and I love that you mentioned all those different providers, because that's also something I didn't know either. When I started experiencing the pain, I thought, apology. That's all I heard about. And then lichen sclerosis is a really interesting condition. And I think one of the reasons that we hit on so many of those providers is because it really sits at the intersection of gynecology and dermatology. Mm -hmm. At its core, it's a skin condition. And we often kind of forget about dermatologists when we talk about in sclerosis. And I do too, for the first two years, even though I knew they were a thing and I knew it was a skin condition, it was just like, I'm so entrenched in this gyne kind of space for in sclerosis. And then it's just, no, at its core, it is a skin condition. So dermatologists can also treat it, but then there's a sexual health component, which means that sexual health medicine providers might need to be included. It can impact the urethra, um, which means that a urologist or a urogynecologist may need to come in. And then 
in all instances, I always say I wish everybody that got an LS diagnosis was referred to a pelvic floor physical therapist um, and and had that to 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 work with. Um, but it's really interesting because it sits in all these spaces and there's so many different components to it. It's there's actually a multitude of providers out there. I actually have a post called What Doctor is Best for Sclerosis? And I walk us through each of the different options and like, when should you maybe like pivot and see a vulvar specialist? What, in what instances are, should you move up in that list? When should a urologist come on board? Because these are important questions and important things that we should, again, be educated about. But again, we're not, right? Growing up, you have a vulva, you have a vagina, you have a uterus. They say, gynecologist, go in, get a pap, get your birth control, tell them about your periods, have them gaslight you about your periods, and then leave. Yep. Yeah, that's a really accurate synopsis. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. But yeah, that, mm, yeah. Mm. Well, and you were talking and, and sharing your both were about this community. And I think that um, kind of fades really well into, uh, you know, how LS can both be traumatizing. And I know when I was trying to Google search, right? That part of it said it could be related to trauma. And the the reason I feel like these two things are connected is that I think that community aspect, that support helps to heal from that trauma. It helps to step out of that shame and step into just being able to breathe and be surrounded by people that can support you. And if you both feel comfortable kind of shifting gears into that next question, I'd love to hear from both of you in terms of a how it can be traumatizing um, which I think we've been unfolding but also be what Google says about what could possibly be related to trauma and and what you both have found in in that I'll start I think that we need to be linking autoimmune and trauma for Mm -hmm. sure in any context because when we talk about nature versus nurture right when we talk about what our biology says in our genes, it needs the environment to go the direction of that we want it to. And that d- direction of thriving is not guaranteed just based on our biology. And so I think anything autoimmune can be tied to stress and trauma in some aspect, even though the stories and the journey that people ended up with getting them to that space are so vastly different. And this is not to undermine the physicalness of this condition. It is to say that we have done a disservice Mm -hmm. separating mental health and physical health. We, I learned that the hard way as a physical therapist, where I was just taught how to put my hands on people's bodies, press on a muscle, fix a muscle, fix a joint, and not the human being that is complex and attached in their nervous system is attached to their body. I've learned that the hard way is that the nervous system takes precedent over absolutely everything else. And so someone coming in for any healthcare service 
you have an opportunity as a medical provider to create space for safety or (laughs) openness and space, or you have an opportunity to potentially re-traumatize somebody or create their first trauma. And I think fundamentally, if we realize that every time somebody comes in, the main goal is protecting their nervous system above all else, everything else about medicine is much easier. And then I think in terms of trauma, it's a disconnection with the relationship of your body. For me, I intimately lost a piece of who I felt like I was, how I used my body, how I related to my partner. And so I had to now looking back, very happy that I actually even had to do this navigation because I think it's made me such a better healthcare provider and like a better partner, better communicator, better human being. But there are there moments of oh my gosh, I didn't want to have to acknowledge that this thing was real and that it existed. So I definitely did a good job of attempting to disconnect with the problem for as long as humanly possible until my body was physically like, you better pay attention to this. And then you have to. I think trauma in that aspect is body disconnection. It affects our relationships and then just knowing what is really important as we're treating patients. I just have to, I put a little asterisk next to it, protecting the nervous system. I just, Me too. Oh, my soul, I just was like, oh, like, so beautifully wrapped up there of, yeah, so effing important. I don't, I can't even say anything more besides that. I, I just need to hone in on that little part. And Jacqueline, if you have anything else to comment, I just... <laughs> I love that. (laughs) I do have things to add, but Mm. I too was like, protect the nervous system above all else. And then I like circled it a bunch of times. And I feel like, again, like I'm a keeper of statements. And I feel like this statement is one that's going to really stay with me that had a really profound impact. I felt it in my body and I'm going to carry that with me. And that was a real gift. So thank you for that. (laughs) So I think... I, I was really excited to do this podcast with both of you, um, especially because of the topic. Trauma and sclerosis is something that is discussed, but not discussed. Um, and there's probably a multitude of reasons, but it's just not something that we hear a lot about. But yet, if you look at our community, most of them have trauma in their past. And interestingly, and I'll start from the medical perspective, and then I'll bring it to a human perspective. Um, There's a recent sclerosis update systematic review published uh, 2023, I believe. Yeah, 2023, DeLuca et al. And they're walking us through, it's very science heavy, but they have this chart that has like a column for healthy skin, early stage, late stage LS. And in that healthy category, it indicates risk factors and trauma is included. And they speak a little bit about trauma, but one of the things that irks me a little bit is that in a lot of these medical papers, they will state trauma as a risk factor, or there seems to be a connection, there seems to be a relation, 
And I'm like, great. So can some of the researchers actually investigate that? Can someone actually take up that question over and above there seems to be a role and then we move on? Um, because it's like, well, that's a really important piece right there. That's not something that we want to sweep under the rug. That is something that we should be asking questions about. And I think one of the thing is when we talk, uh, you know, to the community is that a lot of folks think that trauma means sexual assault mm-hmm. and it absolutely can. And there are many of us in the community that have experienced sexual assault, myself included. And that is often something that comes up. But I always say like trauma to the genital pelvic space is quite broad. If you're a horseback rider and you ever had a a pelvic injury, you broke your, my sister shattered her pelvis at one point riding horses. You could have an accident on your bike. And then, so it's really about expanding how we understand trauma and knowing that it doesn't have to be this narrow understanding. So there are different categories of it. And then the other thing that can come with in sclerosis is medical trauma. When we go back to that five to 15 years diagnosis gap, there's a lot of potential for trauma. As Rebecca was saying, as clinicians, you're poised in a certain way where you can protect their nervous systems or you can ramp up their nervous systems and you can traumatize or re-traumatize. And going through the medical system and being told that you're hysterical, being told that you just need to drink alcohol to function properly. Um, And there are some gross stories of medical gaslighting and medical mistreatment of folks in in this space. And it's that's a trauma too. Um, Repeatedly just experiencing pain with sex, even if it is consensual, is trauma to that area. Childbirth can be traumatic. So There's just, there's so much there that really needs to be discussed. Mm -hmm. And again, that's why I think I was really excited to have this conversation because I know that the community, there's a need. People want discussions about it, right? So it's just like destigmatizing the genitals. It's we need to have conversations about trauma. Again, we do the community a disservice when we just sweep it under the rug, when we say, oh yeah, there might be a connection, goodbye. Mm -hmm. So maybe I don't know the full connection, but let's talk about it anyway. Because there's a lot of wisdom in our community. There's a lot of wisdom in all of these bodies and this collective of of human beings. Let's tap into that. Let's have these conversations um, until a researcher is ready to pick up and But there's space for both, right? There's space for the medical research and then there's space for the lived experiences. But yeah, it's it's definitely, I think there's a connection. And I also agree that when we're talking about autoimmunity, we need to be, again, discussing trauma. Thank you for sharing all of those different pieces. Because I think that it's, like you said, it's so important to look at all of the different not pieces of trauma, but all of the different types of trauma, right? Because there are so many ways that a person can be impacted that it, it's not just always, because I think, yeah, when people typically think of, oh, if, if you were traumatized or you went through trauma, right? At least, it, especially when I'm working with clients, oh, it's nothing that bad happened, right? I wasn't, I didn't go through a, a big trauma, whatever. And and they think, yeah, <laughs> they think about a car accident or being sexually assaulted and there's just so many layers of trauma and things that impact, again, like our nervous system and how we function and being able to come back to a place where we can find healing sometimes just starts with the fact of, yeah, I've I've been through some stuff. And that's just, of course, speaking from my perspective as a mental health provider, but 
just like there's so many different pieces of physical trauma, like you said. Thank you for illuminating on that. Yeah, I think it's interesting how no patients ever really think that not for the most part, think that their own personal struggles have been enough to be classified as any type of tea, any type of trauma. Other people have that Mm -hmm. experience, but it's interesting, but we don't get to pick. We don't get to pick. Mm. It's not a conscious choice to be like, I'm going to be traumatized by this thing. It's going to sit with me from the age of 12 to 31. (laughs) I know it's just so innately ingrained in our nervous system and our nervous systems do such a good job of protecting us Mm -hmm. until they no longer, they're like, I need to get this out like emotions, right? I think of emotions and in the way a lot of people talk about, like when we talk about pelvic pain, the idea of shame and guilt Mm -hmm. comes up a lot. We start to do internal pelvic work and we'll talk about getting into the nervous system and anything that has been suppressed and stored away in like a tiny little box. And you get a pelvic exam a couple of times. And I have people saying, yeah, so I had some memories of these things that came up after our session. (laughs) I had some things come to the surface, like these emotions come to the surface. So I don't know. It's just fascinating in the way that the body protects us and how the physical is an expression of the, our lives. Yeah. Our bodies are so intelligent and so intelligent and that they do. Yeah. They really, they tap into that in protecting us. And at the same time, being able to cue our bodies and say, it's okay, we're safe now. We can breathe. We can process this. We can, you know, work through this. Um, it's so interesting because yeah, our, our bodies are so intelligent, but we also have to tell it sometimes a little kid, right? It's okay. It's okay now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, yeah. Um, I know one of the pieces that we talked about before we started recording um, is how sexual health plays into all of this um, and into uh, the trauma pieces. And so um, I would love to get you both um, to weigh in on that and talk about that some more as well. I think I'll start. I think sexual health, it's interesting what is um, perceived as a reason to go to the doctor Mm -hmm. and people like feel like they have to have pain or Something has to feel broken or wrong before we start talking about sexual health. We're not even on the phase of, is it not just like tolerable, but is it like comfortable, enjoyable? Does it look the way you want? And so facilitating those conversations is some of my favorite conversations of just meeting somebody where they're at with their perception of sexual health. And I, probably scream from the rooftops. I'm sex positive. I'm kink positive. I'm like polyamory positive. You can tell me anything. And I just want to make sure that you are having the sexual health that fits for you. You have a right to that health. It's a part of your healthcare. And we know that people who acknowledge that sexual health distresses them 
report lower quality, report lower quality of life. It's not just something that stays in the sexual health box, but it meanders over to other aspects of health as well. So we can't be ignoring sexual health. Um, And in that statement of sex positivity and all these things, I also have people that aren't on that same page coming in and that's totally okay. If you're only thinking right now is I need to get out of pain and I just need something to be tolerable before I can even imagine and conceptualize pleasure. That's okay. That's an okay space to be in and let's get there. Let's get to where you're trying to get at. And then if you change your mind along the way, or after we reach like that one goal and you're like, okay, so it doesn't hurt anymore. And now things like are feeling pretty neutral, but what it, it can feel good. I can like it. How do I do that? Hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that you make space for folks who sexual health is not the focus. Because I think when we talk about sexual health, it just goes straight into insertion and all of that. And it's that might not be somebody's priority right now. Like you said, the priority might be first step is just pain. First step is just that. Then it might be urinary incontinence or something like that. It may never include insertion and that's okay too. So I just love first and foremost that you even say that. More people, please say this. So <laughs> I think for me, when I think about sexual health and how it intersects with trauma, it also intersects with mental health. These things are all intertwined. And so when I think about how sexual health with lichen sclerosis can be traumatic, I think about how we can lose body parts. That can be really traumatic for folks because we're not raised being told that, hey, your clitoris could just disappear. You completely resorb into the surrounding area or you can lose your labia. Your vaginal opening can narrow and close. These are terrifying things for folks. And I can say as somebody who kind of works on the front lines as a support resource, there's a lot of trauma and distress around that alone, about processing the loss of a part of their body that they really had a strong identity to, a sexual identity to, it's really hard for folks to lose that part of them. Then grief comes in, distress comes in, all these other things. And then that is, of course, mental health. And then there's a lot of folks lose their partners due to this condition. So there's, I'm very grateful to have a partner who is incredibly supportive so much so that he'll go into YouTube videos and talk about his experience with how we navigated sexual health. So yeah, when I say he's supportive, I mean, he is like very supportive, but a lot of folks don't have that. And so some folks go through divorce because of lichen sclerosis, and that can be a really traumatic thing to just tear, to experience recurrent tearing with insertion of any kind is also traumatic whether it's with a sex toy, a finger, a penis, et cetera, to have your body just split open in like a non-childbirth-like context is really scary because growing up, when I understood like vulvar tears, I thought of childbirth. I thought, okay, there'll be some tears potentially during childbirth. And that's when the body tears in that area. I didn't think that it could tear with the insertion of an index finger or a speculum or a tampon. 
uh, but it can. And so to have your body split open and tear like that repeatedly, when you try to engage in any kind of sexual activity, uh, that can be really traumatic for a lot of folks. And again, it's like a mental health and sexual health combined because there's a lot of distress about it. Then you start losing confidence, your body image starts to change. It's just, there's so much to really unpack in that area. And that's why it it is such a passion for me to talk about sexual health because we're not talking about it enough. And it, it has deep effects on people. It really does. Something that was sticking out to me as both of you were speaking is that it's the whole person, right? And I, I, as I was thinking, as I was saying it, it almost sounds too simple, right? Oh yeah, of course it's the whole person, but it really, like we break it down in all of these minuscule ways of the physical and the spiritual and the mental and the emotion, like all these different components of the person, but it's the whole person. Like we are one whole being and we need to be wholly taken care of in all these different facets to really feel whole. <laughs> like, And that yeah. sounds simplistic, but it's so true. I actually think it's not, I don't take that as simplistic. I think that's actually really profound. And I, as you were speaking, I reflected on my own experience and Rebecca was saying about that disconnect between kind of mind and body. And I was thinking as I was experiencing the trauma of repeatedly tearing, I started to dissociate. I didn't want to be in my body anymore. And sitting and being in my body caused me so much distress that I actively worked to create that disconnect. It's almost like I went to pain, to like a pain therapy clinic at one point, and they wanted us to do a body scan. And I sat there thinking, why on earth would you ask chronic pain patients to sit in their bodies and focus on their pain. Like we want to escape. We want to get out. Like, why do you want, it seems so counterintuitive, but then I really do think that when we think about the wholeness of the person, it's like, no, I was actively working on dismantling that wholeness because I couldn't sit with that wholeness. That wholeness was, it was so hard to be uh, whole. So I had to actively <laughs> start making a puzzle and taking some pieces apart because that's how I coped in, in those moments really was by disconnecting. I'm not that, how um, so many people cope. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That coping strategy, I was just going to say it comes up so many times and I'll have people, I'll ask a question like, how do your, I don't know, how do your gynecology exams go? They're not comfortable, but they're fine. And my exams are so different in the sense of making some, having someone be present and paying attention. And I'm asking them questions like, tell me about the temperature here. Tell me about the right versus left side. Tell me about what does this like texture feel like? Does it feel rough or smooth? And all of these things are like, what does this pressure feel like? Can you feel the difference between this pressure on your pelvis versus this pressure on your thigh? And what I'm really trying to do with all of these things is I'm not gonna say if it's not trying to force somebody to be in their body, but just see like how the body responds by actually being present during the exam and not like a passive participant of something happening to their body, but they're actually physically there. And they're not only there, but they're like, what is my body feeling right now? And that's a whole heap of a different exam from like a pap smear. So you have an ending to one of those that's very clear and the other one is this kind of ongoing layered acknowledgement of collecting data. 
And this is where the unsafety comes from, because when you have been, when you've created this protective response, it is keeping you safe. And as soon as we start to break it down, it's extremely vulnerable. And a lot of that just feels like danger. Even someone coming into the office, even someone agreeing to do an exam, that in of itself is like huge, remarkable steps in the right direction. And everything is not going to get done typically in one pelvic PT session. I always try to prepare people for the anticipation of knowing that the journey, we don't know what that's going to look like, but there's a lot of flexibility within that journey to fit for you, but it's, it's not easy. It almost reminds me of grounding, not necessarily like a hundred percent, but it does. It feels grounding. It feels very allowing that person to feel the safety, but also have the voice. So you're empowering them, but you're also helping them ground in the presence. So that way they can be present with you instead of passive. Yeah, I need that. That's the most important yeah. part. And also some people do feel grounded and some people absolutely hate it. Mm. And I get it. So I try not to ever like push someone to where they're not ready to go to. Yeah. It's always just a matter of it's, but it's hard to answer questions about your body. Like you said, when you're asked to like sit in your body and pay attention. I definitely, some of the questions I ask are abstract. I know people ask about colors mm-hmm. and sorry, there's like a background noise. I don't know. <laughs> Tree wise. Okay. Some of the questions I ask, I say are abstract mm-hmm. textures, like an abstract question does feel rough or smooth. And then. You could always do different things at the brain to connect and rewire things in a different way. But I love that's That is the aspect of healthcare that excites me because when someone leaves from that session, they're like, okay, I didn't fix it. I didn't fix something, but I made a new connection that is super exciting. And I can't believe I did that. I love that. I love that so much. <sighs> um. So I want to ask about places of support um, because I know that was another piece of this puzzle. And I know, Rebecca, you shared like all of these different professionals that that are helping professionals that could fit into that puzzle. Jacqueline, I know you have a huge community. So I really just want us to hone in on that for a second and talk about the resources that are out there, the resources that you both provide and how they can help someone. Resources. Okay. I would say pelvic therapists for the aspect of the physical work of the body, right? And knowing that there is a relationship to your brain and you're going to have to participate in different ways, but um, pelvic floor physical therapist for pelvic floor muscle retraining, because obviously if you've had itchiness or pain or just a chronic like irritation, then your your muscles are not doing the thing that we want them to. Of course, they're not doing the flexible thing that Mm -hmm. we need them to be doing. So that's where pelvic floor PT comes into play. And then anything bowel, bladder, sexual health, we discuss, although I'm going to layer sexual health as yes, that pelvic physical therapists talk about sexual health, but I think there's an extra layer for someone who's had like additional training and education specifically for sex counseling, Mm -hmm. or I use my sex counseling as like a bridge then to sometimes referring people out to a sex therapist. And I know Jacqueline Mm -hmm. will 
like heart, say, yes, sex therapy. And I'm also like, yes, sex therapy, because I think it gets, I think just putting the word sex in front of therapy is like confusing for people and scary for people. I got to talk about sex the whole time. No, that's not really how that works. (laughs) Whole person, whole person. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the problem is sex therapists are like, they're busy. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're busy people and they got busy schedules. And so who is like certified? And then like, I know you do EMDR. So then there's like EMDR. So having somebody to help you navigate like the therapy Mm -hmm. world and who would be like a good therapist that fits like your needs and the needs of each person are different. And then as far as like all the other resources, I'll leave them up to Jacqueline. (laughs) Yes, we know. I love my sex therapy. Talk about it all the time. And yeah, it's funny because I... Did sex therapy for almost three, three years. And most of the time we were not talking about sex. So just to validate, I think it's true that some people have this, oh, oh, not for me. That's too intense or or, or whatnot. I, I don't want to just talk about sex to a stranger. And you might not even bring up sex for the first 12 sessions. And even then it's may not even take center stage. And also it could, if you want it to though, you get to dictate what gets airtime, so to speak. So I think in terms of resources, I'm going to start from a support group perspective, and then I'm going to work my way up to different kind of professionals that you can bring in. The reason I like starting with support groups is, well, I loved what Rebecca was saying about community. Um, and it's true. The first time I went to a virtual meetup for like in sclerosis, I was very like straight faced during. And then after the call, I cried because Mm. it felt like Rebecca said, it felt so healing. It was so powerful because again, when I was diagnosed, I was told, oh, this only happens happens to postmenopausal folks. Mm. So you're really strange in this respect. You're like a weird anomaly. And so I live in a city of 3 million plus people. And I felt like I was the only person. And for Mm. the first year of my journey, I didn't know a single face single voice, a single person with this condition other than myself. And then all of a sudden, my laptop was populated by these little boxes with faces across the globe of other individuals that had this condition. And just to feel that sense of, okay, I'm not alone. There are other people out there. And these people, they understand what I'm talking about. When I talk about how upset I was losing my labia, they get it. When I talk about the discomfort I'm having, they don't tell me, oh yeah, I've had yeast infections. They suck. But they really, truly get it. And the community for the most part is incredibly compassionate and very empathetic. And they really show up for each other in a really beautiful way. And so support groups, there's so many out there now. I think that's one of the beauties of how this community has been shifting. When I was diagnosed, there was not much. And now there's a whole host of options. So there are a ton of different Facebook groups. I don't admin any of them, so I can't vouch for them, but they are out there. There's also Reddit has a forum on there. Um, Go in and ask questions and get support and find connections. And then LSSN, which is like in Sclerosis Support Network, we host biweekly free virtual meetups. Um, some of the reasons I like to start with the support groups is because they're free. 
Um, and one thing that I always try to keep in mind when I have these conversations is accessibility and being mindful that not everybody, um, can afford sex therapy or some of these other options. I always like to start with, Hey, there is still something here that is accessible for you. There are these Facebooks you can access 24 seven and somebody will answer our support group. It's free. It's every other Saturday. We offer two sessions, two to two to four and seven to nine to try to accommodate as many time zones as we can. And so I think those spaces in and of itself can be really healing. Just that community aspect of I'm not alone in this and other people understand and will hear me and listen to me compassionately is incredibly powerful. And then I also do one-on-one support calls for folks who maybe aren't ready for support groups because the thing is, is support groups aren't good for everybody, right? Some folks are really shy, really anxious, and or they still do carry a lot of shame and they aren't comfortable talking about their genitals to strangers on the internet, or they just want more time. So one of the things with the support groups that we have to be mindful is you're sharing your time with others in the community, which means that you can't necessarily show up and ask 40 questions that you have. You have to limit it to one so that you make space for everybody else. For folks that maybe have a lot of questions that don't feel comfortable in a kind of group setting, I do offer one-on-one calls, uh, different lengths, depending on what folks need. Um, so those are like the main things. I also do have a free ebook. It's over 60 pages of evidence-based information. And it also has a ton of support resources in there as well, both free and paid. Um, that's free. And I will always keep it free because I think at bare minimum, everybody should get the fundamental education and resources and information just from the get-go have that. So there's just a ton of, ton of support resources there at the end. And then building out, it's really about building a team Mm -hmm. um, to support you. So your support group or your peer support is part of that. And then it's different professionals. So therapy, absolutely. And therapy may look different for each person. And you can also, one thing I tell folks is you can have more than one therapist. I think sometimes you think you got to just pick one. And I'm like, no, you could have a sex therapist and a pain counselor or someone that works strictly with chronic illness. You could do both if that's accessible for you, both time and financially, et cetera. I do live in Canada, so I'm also mindful that what's accessible for me in this country is slightly different. I was admitted into a 12-month pain counseling program, very intensive at the hospital, and that was 100% free. So I am very mindful. I know that's how it should be everywhere. Stop. So, so yes. Yeah, uh, we would meet twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. We had a whole pain education, psychoeducation, and then we met together and we did CBT. We did mindfulness practices together. We had support group spaces. We had access to the psychologist. And this was like, again, 12 months all free. So again, just to be mindful that, you know, folks listening in might be in different parts of the world. But so we tend to think, oh, you do therapy, you commit to one, it's one type. So I do talk therapy and that's it. But it's again, no branch out. And it might be some experimentation trying to figure out what you need. And also those needs might shift. So you may start with a sex therapist 
And then you feel like, okay, I feel good, but now I feel like maybe I need to work through some trauma that I haven't addressed. And then working with people like yourself, Candice, um, who really do like EMDR trauma kind of therapy, that's a great place for a lot of folks with LS to work through some of the medical trauma that they have, other types of trauma, really important to address that. So you might at a different point decide that's going to be my focus. Art therapy can be very helpful for a lot of folks as well. And something that I think doesn't get spoken about a lot. Art therapy was one of my favorite things growing up because as an adolescent, I found it very challenging to find my words to represent what was going up in my head. And so art therapy was so freeing for me because I didn't have to use my words. I just got to, and I guess in a sense, it's like a somatic experience too, because you're just letting the body do its thing, right? You're just picking up the colors and moving your body in different ways to do whatever you're doing on the paper. And so I use the word therapist and therapy in that really broad way when I talk about building your team. Um, I always talk about the importance of pelvic floor physical therapy um, for everyone. Again, being mindful that's not always accessible for everybody out there. Um, I do tell folks that if pelvic floor physical therapy is not accessible to you, um, my pelvic floor physical therapist has a YouTube channel. It's called Body Scan by Jane. And she does a lot of pelvic floor meditations. And what I love about her channel is that some of these are really short, like she's three minute meditations, five minute meditations. And I love this because a lot of folks tell me, I know meditation is great. I know the science behind it is strong, but girl, I don't have 30 minutes, an hour of my day to be doing this. I got three kids. I work, I this, I that. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So this person has you and YouTube is free right? I always say she tells, she has a whole meditation on like reverse Kegels and all these different things. So I'm like pelvic floor physical therapy, if that's not accessible to you, you can try listening to that channel and just learning to breathe into your pelvic floor, learning to connect to your pelvic floor, learning it's better than not addressing it at all. So that's right. I like to always, I always try to do free and paid at the same time of any category. Um, so that folks always have options. Another thing is one of my good friends, Penny, she is a certified yoga coach and she has a pelvic floor yoga membership and she does pelvic floor yoga in there. She also does EFT. She does breathing techniques, meditations, all those types of things. And again, with the meditations, I always tell folks like YouTube is free. Just if you can't afford certain programs, certain this, There are some amazing folks on YouTube with quality content. Don't underestimate the value of just plugging something into YouTube and giving it a go. But yeah, I definitely touched on sex therapy, but I also want to say another resource that I've been thinking more and more about is sex educators, because one of the things that really, I have to name my own privilege in being able to work with a sex therapist because they're very expensive or they can be. Um, people have different insurances, people have different this and that, and some of their prices can be high because they are more specialized. So it's almost like having an extra degree, continuing education, something like that. So their prices can be a bit higher. Um, but a lot of sex educators like Selena Gomes, who also has sclerosis, she does offer one-on-one kind of sex education coaching. And so that can be another avenue for the middle, a midpoint, sex therapy being the most expensive, and then a midpoint being a sex educator. There's also a lot of 
uh, resources out in terms of books if folks are open to that. Um, Dr. Lori Brado in particular stands out to me. She does a lot of work on sexual health and libido and, and all these different types of conditions. And she also has a mindfulness workbook. So her first book kind of steps in is that psychoeducation piece. And then the second workbook is helping you do these practices yourself. Um, maybe again, like prices will vary, but you're talking maybe $30, $50 for both books, depending on where you are, where you're ordering from. But that's a one-time payment. And then you can do that. Again, if a sex educator one-on-one is too pricey, then you have those books and those workbooks and stuff like that. So always, again, I like to, to offer free, paid, and something in the middle. Yeah, I know that was a lot of resources, but I... <laughs> Beautiful. That's I do want to ask, what was the yeah. last, Lori, what was the last name? Dr. Lori Brado, B-R-O-T-O. Okay. I completely had that wrong. So I'm glad I asked. (laughs) I was typing along as you both were talking. So I want to make sure and I'm going to link as much as I can in the show notes and I will email you with my questions. I was going to say, I'm happy to just make a nice list for you too. If that saves time, I do not mind. If you have, you're sure. (laughs) I can put it together. Perfect. Thank you. Yes. And I I think I just spoke for 10 minutes about resources. So I'm happy to put that in a concise little. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. I absolutely love it. As I was going through and typing it, like I was so much juicy, good resources. So thank you both. Mm -hmm. Ah. That's what we need. That's what people. Yes. This is maybe just like a little tiptoe dip in the water podcast for somebody. And they're like, Mm -hmm. I need something else. Where do I go from here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we are going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. (laughs) I wanted to take a quick pause to share with you a few resources. So if you are looking for ways to find more grounding and more mindfulness in your daily life and with real actionable steps, I've developed a workbook that will walk you through developing this skill. It comes from a trauma-informed lens. So if you've tried mindfulness before and you felt like it was more triggering than useful, you could have been actively dealing with a trauma response. So this workbook is designed for trauma survivors. And more than that, it gives you actionable steps and it's packed with information. So whether your schedule looks like a stay-at-home caregiver, whether you're someone who works a nine-to-five or something else entirely, there's something in this workbook for you. So you can head over to soulmission-emdrtherapy.com slash podcast. You can subscribe for our newsletter where you'll get reminders once a month about new content and an email with that free workbook. Again, that link is soulmission-emdrtherapy.com slash podcast, and you can find that link in the show notes. If you are enjoying this episode, and I truly hope that you are, if you think that it might be useful for someone else, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform or on podchaser.com, because that is the best way to get the word out about this podcast. And lastly, if you'd like to work with me and you live in either Arizona or Florida, I now have openings for EMDR intensive sessions. These are sessions that are longer than your standard 50-minute therapy session and can really help you reach a place of grounding and healing from past trauma quicker than the standard talk therapy session once per week. So if you'd like to find out more about this, I invite you to set up a free 15-minute consultation where we can chat about if this type of work is right for you. Uh, It is also a great 
accompaniment for if you are already working with a therapist and you're having a hard time breaking through some kind of block or trauma response or trauma trigger. You can go to soulmission-emdrtherapy.com slash contact, which will be in the show notes. All right, let's get back to today's episode. So the next piece is really just breaking down. Obviously, providers aren't robots, and we've been talking about how that plays in and all the different ways that providers shouldn't be robots, right? Because it can be so traumatizing. With this section of the show, I like to just give an example of our humanness. So that way we can start to break down those barriers a little bit. Uh, Would you feel comfortable in sharing something that just gives an example of your humanness that you are in fact, not a robot, you are human? (laughs) I am more than an encyclopedia, guys. I am more than an encyclopedia. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know what? First of all, I love this question. Just in general, I always tell people you are more than your like sclerosis. And whenever I do a one-on-one call, I usually say, tell me something non-LS related. Don't try to wow me or blow my mind. It can literally be like, I make the best cup of Earl Grey tea. Um, I have three cats. Just, I don't, I need something that's not LS related because at the end of the day, we're all human. So I love that you asked this question. One thing, so if you ask about what I'm passionate about and it's not LS, it would be anime. I'm a huge anime manga geek. Like I'm repping my Jujutsu Kaisen Saw that. right now. The last podcast I was on, I was wearing Naruto gear and the podcast host was like, is that a Naruto shirt? And I was like, sure is, sure. (laughs) So when I'm like not doing LS work, I am watching anime or reading manga, either physical copies or on my phone, or I am shopping and looking for figures and stuff. My husband and I, what we we both watched this series. I don't know if anyone listening will know this, but it's called One Piece. And they there's it's about pirates. And so there's a lot of boats in the show and there's, we go to this store called like anime extreme or something like that. I don't remember the name and you can buy boats from the one piece anime and you can build them yourself. So it's like a little model. So what we do these little like date days and we get a boat together and then we sit and we put on a one piece movie and we get snacks and we build this little miniature boat together and it's super fun. Yeah. I and I that. think a lot of people like don't expect that out of me. When I show up like this with my anime shirt, it's okay, fine, fair. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think when people see me as citing medical research and talking so clinically about things, they probably don't expect that this is like what I love to do in my spare time. But I it is. Love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And I love that you guys make it like a whole date day and it's I just know, a right? special time for you both. That's... <laughs> Oh, so beautiful. I love the connection there. Mm-hmm. Yes. What is a one trauma tip that you wish every human being would be aware of? I feel like you've given a lot of trauma tips in this episode, honestly. But <laughs> if there was one that you had to boil it down to, what do you feel like it would be? I think, and this is going back to our conversation earlier, but it's to not diminish your own trauma. I really think there is that tendency in us to do that. And I did it with myself. And it was only when I volunteered in grad school Mm -hmm. on a crisis line, crisis support line, that I realized I was doing this to myself. 
and that I was constantly like, it wasn't trauma because this person has it worse, or it wasn't trauma because I still had a house. And I think that's so common. And on the crisis line, I would frequently hear people say, and it's not, I know people have it worse and it's not really a big deal. And I don't know that it should be assault. It's maybe it's not assault. And it's just, we do that to ourselves. It's such a common thing where we diminish our trauma. But when we diminish our trauma, we can't work with it. We can't learn from it. Um, and we really can't start that healing journey because we're just flat out not acknowledging it. Um, I think if anything, of all the tips, it would just be don't diminish your own trauma and then know that there are resources out there and that there's a diversity of resources. Yes. So again, coming back to play around, a lot of folks have never heard of EMDR, but it is incredibly helpful for trauma incredibly helpful. But again, we're just so ingrained in this talk therapy couch chair. Yep. I say, you ask a question, I respond, you analyze, and then I leave kind of thing. But there are so many different ways that you can find support mm-hmm. in healing from that trauma. So don't minimize and know that there's hope and resources out there mm-hmm. for you. Yes. Yeah, I 100% agree. And in fact, I've said this on a couple of episodes I've recorded so far of even if in your healing journey five years ago, maybe you needed this one type of healing or this one type of path, and maybe today you need something different. And so just figuring out like, what do I need in this moment? What is my body telling me? What is my soul telling me? What do I need to move forward to the next phase or just to move forward, period? And then go from there and play. I love how you put that to play because yeah, when we're in the midst of it, it can feel like work, I think for a lot of people. And so instead trying to reframe it of like, I get to play around and see what is out there and what feels good for me right now and figuring out like, how do I go forward and and playing with that and making it um, a journey of curiosity rather than I have to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Curiosity and play two beautiful things in life that we escapes us as adults. And we, again, that we build this disconnect Mm -hmm. and we lose that sense of curiosity and play, but it's so important. It is. It's so important. Hmm. All right. So the final fast, sometimes funny questions that I like to ask everyone on the show, again, just to hone in on our humanness. And I think it's just a fun way to wrap up the show. So With the first one being, where would you go if you could visit any place on earth, not a different planet, it would be, surprise, surprise, Japan, because (laughs) anime manga. Yeah. And so like in Japan, they have all these like anime hotels. So I'm like the biggest Naruto fan. And so I want to say in like the Naruto hotel, it's like my biggest goal in your bucket list. Yeah. So people might be like, that's where you want to go. You want to go to Japan for a Naruto hotel. Yeah. Straight up. Yes. (laughs) So what exactly break that down for someone that maybe doesn't watch Naruto? What does that mean or look like? What is. So everything physically looks like you're in their ninja world. So Naruto is about ninja. So one piece is like pirates. 
Naruto is ninjas. And so they'll have, there's this character, Jiraiya, who's always peeping over this little fence, if you will. And he's in the bathroom peeping. And then you have ninja sleeping bag things, all with the logos of the different clans. You have slippers with the logos of the clans. You'll have the Akatsuki robes. Um, It just very much looks like you are in the Naruto world. Their baths look like the baths from the show. Just everything is geared up. No detail has been omitted. (laughs) So it's like Disneyland, except for... Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. I get it. (laughs) I'm going to use that in the future when I tell people. Because a lot of people are like, what the hell is Naruto? (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. Should pineapple be on pizza? Yes. 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 Always. Always. I love it. Mm. 100%. What makes you feel inspired or motivated to do this work that you love? Probably hearing from folks that for the first time ever, they felt hope or that for the first time ever since being diagnosed, they have the will to keep living. That's something we get a lot. And I think that in itself is so powerful to just know that you're helping supporting other people. I can't think of a better motivator than that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think uh, that that hope, it's so important. And it, I think it can be lost really easily, but it also yeah. like when someone finds it, it's just, there's nothing that feels quite like that. Yeah. What is one thing that people are generally surprised to find out about you, which I think you may have answered at some point? Yeah, like it's probably anime and how obsessed I am with that and that I like to do cosplay and all of that. I guess some people might be surprised that I am like a heavy weightlifter. I definitely love lifting very heavy things in the gym. And I'm also very outdoorsy. Like I grew up camping and my dad was like, it's not camping if you're in a trailer. It's only camping if you like pitch the tent yourself. And yeah, so that's how I grew up was like, with that kind of mentality. And normally, I'll have a full face of makeup, like lashes, contour, like everything. And so people see me and they don't think that Mm. I, I always tell people I'm like, Oh, no, I'm super outdoorsy. And they're like, yeah, like you live in Toronto. You're like glammed to the nines. Please don't tell me. And I'm like, listen, I can pitch a tent. I can make a fire. I can take care of myself in the wilderness. I can portage. I can stick the canoe over my head. Dang. We're good. <laughs> I got you. Yep. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um, What does one simple moment of pure joy look like for you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love this question. Although it is something that I struggled with for so long because of that disconnect that I created with my body, I didn't almost know what joy felt like for the longest Mm -hmm. time. And so now I would say, and this might sound really bizarre, but moving warm water, Mm -hmm. water coming down from a shower Mm -hmm. in a spa, a waterfall, being in water in any capacity. I grew up as a competitive swimmer and my first introduction to the water was my mother throwing infant me into a pool with two tiny little ring things, floaty devices. And she threw me in and my dad had that face. My dad was horrified. He was like, what are you doing, ma'am? Like, that's our infant child. And she was like, don't worry. 
my family's competitive swimmers. We're all swimmers. She'll be fine. And apparently tiny little infant me was just beaming from well, that very young age. That's just, good. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm still here. So I survived, but I just, I love being in water and water is such a powerful thing for me. And it's also very soothing. When I feel very anxious, I turn off the lights in my bathroom and I take a shower so that the light is off and I can really just focus on the sensation of the warm water running along my body with no distractions of, oh, I need to clean that or, oh, that shampoo bottle's almost empty. I really need to throw that shampoo bottle out. Like none of that because it's dark and I'm just focused on the water. So yeah, mm. water brings me joy. Mm. I love that. Oh, thank you, Jacqueline, so much for being on our podcast show today. I so enjoyed this conversation with both you and Rebecca, just learning and understanding so much more about LS, but also just like the community around it and all of the pieces that are intertwined with the the healing process for those. And I'm hoping that this show will give someone out there hope and information and resources that they need. So thank you again so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a brilliant conversation. And yeah. I've just, I've learned so much. I've taken away so much from this. So I'm very grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Moving Out of Trauma. If you'd like today's episode and you think it might be useful for someone else, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform or on podchaser.com. And if you have any questions at all, I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can find me over on Instagram at soulmission underscore EMDR therapy or on Facebook at Soul Mission EMDR Therapy. If you'd like, please stay tuned for the visualization exercises coming up next to transition to the next part of your day. And remember, you did not choose trauma and you can choose your path towards healing. This is Moving Out of Trauma. So I just want to invite you to find a comfortable position and to make sure that you're doing this exercise somewhere uh, safe, somewhere where you feel um, that you can take a few moments for yourself um, and definitely not while you're driving. So we're going to start with the container activity and then move into the calm seat place. So it's good to have a secure place where you can store memories and issues and, and things that may need still some work, um, but also maybe you don't need to focus on them right at this point. So if you think about it almost like cleaning up the files on your desktop computer, so you can just feel a little bit less overwhelmed and focus a little bit more efficiently. The files are in a safe place and you can access them the next time that you need to. So to start creating this container, I'd like you to imagine some kind of container or storage system that can securely hold as much as you need it to for as long as you need it to until you're ready to work on it again. So this container can be something you imagine. It could be something that's real. We just wanna make sure that this container has a lid or some type of secure closure. So that way there's a way to take things out only when you want to. 
Now it's important to note, we don't want to put people in containers, but we can put memories and feelings and any kind of situations. So take a moment and really think about what that container might look like. Notice how the container feels. Notice how it feels that it's there for you. Should you choose to use it or when you choose to use it. And now if you need to use that container, I want you to picture allowing whatever needs to go in there to take its place in there. This can happen slowly. This can happen quickly. However it needs to happen, it's okay. Just allow the pieces, the memories, the thoughts, the feelings, the situation, whatever it is, to just slowly take its place into that container. Now, once you feel like the things that need to be in the container are in there, I want you to close that container. Some people like to imagine that there's a lock there or some kind of secured closure beyond just a a lid. So if you like, you can go ahead and lock that. And then just imagine it kind of taking its place back into wherever it needs to be. So this could be a place that you think of in your home. This could be an imaginary place, wherever it is. Just some place that we know that it's there when we need it. And now we're going to transition to that calm state change place. So this is a really good activity to develop a couple of ways to feel more calm and secure without really needing to rely on something or someone external than us. So one way we can do this to create this type of place that you can visit internally whenever you want, kind of like having an instant mini vacation on demand. So see if you can think of a place where you might feel a sense of calm or a sense of well-being. You can imagine a place that's similar to one that you've experienced or heard about read about. It's best not to use a specific memory with people though from your own history. So some people like to think of the beach or the woods, mountains, maybe someplace they feel cozy. So just notice this place. Notice what you hear. Notice what you smell. Look around. What do you see? What do you feel? Maybe either the temperature, the time of day, even down to how you feel in your body as you imagine yourself in this place. Really just allowing yourself to soak up every single positive part of this place. The way it looks, the things that you hear, 
the things that you smell, the things that you might be able to touch, any textures or temperatures, and really encapsulating what you feel in your body as you're in this place, as long as it feels good and calm and a place of centeredness. Now knowing that this place is always available to you because it is within you. It's a place of your very own making. A place that you can return anytime you need. Whether it's for the quick deep breaths, returning to center, or maybe even winding down for the evening. This place is always here for you. this recording is going to finish but if you'd like to stay in this place a while longer you're certainly more than welcome to do so and I hope that you'll join me next time on moving out of trauma